everybody. Welcome back to today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you are having a great week, and I hope everything in your community is going well. So I'm really excited about today's conversation, and yes, I know I say that a lot, but it's true. So today, Sam Gill, President and CEO of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, joins me. The foundation supports the performing arts, medical research, the environment, and child well-being. Sam is also president of the Duke Farms Foundation and the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art. He's also the former vice president and chief program officer at the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and vice president of Friedman Consulting. Sam is a deep thinker. We're going to learn all about the foundation. We're going to learn all about who Doris Duke was and how the foundation carries on her legacy. We're also going to dive into the role of philanthropy and what philanthropy can really do to move society forward. So get ready, everybody. This is a great conversation. I can't wait to hear from you about your takeaways. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I'm so excited to have my guest here today. He is Sam Gill, and he is with the Doris Duke Foundation. Welcome, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. I um, was so happy when we uh, were able to connect a few weeks ago. We had the loveliest, like, pre-recorded conversation. <laughs> I almost wish we could have recorded that. But we'll have to we'll have to do our best today to replicate some of that authentic feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I want to start off with the introductions and I was thinking this morning cuz I don't know about you, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts uh, usually on my uh uh, hopefully daily walk if it's not too cold. And by cold, uh, Sam, I mean in Georgia, like 50 degrees is cold for me. Right. Um, I know you have a different metric probably living where you are. But anyway, I, you know, so many times on podcasts, it's like, you know, somebody goes through, you know, where they went to school and all the jobs they've had. And I think a much more interesting question is tell us how you came to be who you are. And maybe we could just start there and then we'll move into your work with the foundation. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, so I, uh, speaking of cold, I grew up in Minneapolis um, and my mom uh, is from the Midwest, the upper Midwest originally. Uh, and my dad uh, is from India. They met in graduate school actually in 1968. And so he was part of kind of an earlier wave of South Asian immigration to the US. And um, and then I have one older brother uh, who was born in 1979 and has um, Down syndrome. And so, you know, I think that that version of the nuclear family um, is probably the most important determinant of, of how I came to be, certainly how I came to see the world. Um, it, I grew up in an affluent suburb of Minneapolis, and I had you know, this dad who is brown and, and who still wears a turban, and so we were really visibly marked as different in that mm -hmm. way. And then I, of course, have this brother who has a disability that you can detect uh, visually. Um, and so, you know, every day of my life was 
um, an illustration of the really subtle ways in which um, socially significant difference can influence um, the distribution of opportunities, the distribution of privileges, the distribution of rights, um, and the, the the sort of most basic quanta of well-being. And um, you know, we didn't. These weren't issues that we talked about a lot. We had to. We talked about them a little bit because um, people with disabilities in this country didn't really have formal civil rights until 1991 with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And those rights weren't really, weren't realized substantially in an educational setting until the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act of the late 90s. So a lot of my childhood was, was being around my parents having conversations with the school district and with others in order to secure opportunity for educational opportunity um, um, for, my, for my brother. Uh, but we didn't we didn't talk about these issues a lot, um, but we didn't need to talk about them. You know, I could see I could see how my brother and my dad enjoyed a visibly palpably different experience of the world than than I did. Um, and, and then in some ways than my mom did. And so, you know, that was really interesting to me, you know, understanding the mechanics of that. Um, um, and, and, and thinking about what the solutions could be and how I could be a part of, you know, building a world where those sorts of differences aren't socially significant, certainly not morally significant. Um, and that, that led me into my education and I studied political theory because I felt it was a more fundamental way to get at these questions. And then, you know, like a lot of people who ended up, who end up in institutional philanthropy, you know, my course wasn't that direct. I, thought I would be a scholar and decided not to do that. And then worked with a, um, a guy named Tom Friedman in Washington to build up a, a consulting firm that he had started that's now quite large, um, where we worked with a lot of foundations, we worked with a lot of nonprofits. And then, you know, from there became involved formally in, uh, in, in major foundations. But I think that, you know, the question that interested me when I was really young is the question that still you know, interests me today, which is, which is, you know, thinking about um, really, really understanding why some differences are socially significant, really understanding the mechanics of translating that social significance into a moral significance that fundamentally influences, you know, what the opportunities that a person can enjoy, whether a person feels safe and secure and well, and, and then trying to address those mechanics um, head on, you know, we didn't, when I was growing up, we had a language of civil rights. We didn't really have a language of social justice that I think we now have. Um, certainly, in 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 the sector that I'm in, and I would imagine the kind of sector that many of your listeners are in. Um, but that that's that's what's animated, you know, the the me, and and accounts for the story of how I got to where I am. Well, I love that, and and, and thank you for for sharing. I really appreciate that. I, I really do think it's so important for us to think about where we came from. I don't think anybody ends up in this work by accident. Yeah, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true. I, you know, I think for some people, um, it, it may be about, um, a, a story like mine. Um, it, and, and I'm sure for some people, and this is true, uh, of, of me as well. I think some of it's stylistic. I think some of us, you know, want to feel, um, 
the the social purpose of our work. We don't want it to be syllogistic. I think if you work at a big private company, I, you can quite appropriately say that, you know, I'm a part of producing the goods and services that people really value. They value them, these goods and services so much they're willing to pay for them. Um, but I think it feels more abstract and removed in that context than than it does in the work of a foundation or in the work of a community nonprofit or in the work of government. So that is a good shift to your work now in the Doris Duke Foundation. And I um, want our listeners to kind of really understand the foundation. I love when I'm listening to NPR and I hear you like, oh, I'm going to talk to Sam in a few weeks. That's so great. Uh, but for those of listeners who are not familiar with the foundation, can you, can you share a little bit about uh, the history, first of all, and then let's talk about the mission and values. And I, I love your tagline, by the way, supporting the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. So let's talk about the history, the mission, and the values, and then we'll dig in a little bit to some of the, the work that you all fund. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. I, I, um, so Doris Duke was the only lineal descendant of J.B. Duke, um, who helped to create the American Tobacco Company, which was a trust that was later busted. Um, he also helped to create uh, Duke Power um, originally to provide to meet the energy needs of his tobacco business, but then it eventually became a separate concern, which still exists today, providing a lot of power uh, in the in the southeastern United States as a major utility company. Um, JB died when Doris Duke was quite young, and um, he left um, a significant share of his wealth to her. It came in a few. Um, tranches. Uh, the other portion of his wealth he left to the Duke Endowment, which is still a really important um, foundation that's headquartered uh, in, in, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina today. Um, so from a very early age, Doris Duke had access to um, the kind of, of historically extravagant wealth that that accounted for the origins, really, of institutional philanthropy in this country. And it drew a lot of attention to her. Uh, she was called the, sort of the richest girl in the world um, when she was young and, and, and spent a lot of her life, I think, trying to avoid um, that spotlight and perhaps, you know, the expectations that came with it. She didn't leave a lot of documentary evidence about her interests and her feelings and her experience. So we just have to infer um, from, from, from what we saw. Um, Doris, uh, sort of just doing the chronological history, uh, Doris Duke uh, passed away in 1993 um, and left the vast majority of her estate to what's now the Doris Duke Foundation. Um, and it took a few years to sort that out. And then it took another few years um, to to um, kind of convert a really complicated set of real assets into a, into a contemporary um, philanthropic endowment. Um, you know, the... the the modern foundation, we try to operate the way that Doris Duke lived. And I think that the way she lived can really be described by a few words. I think the first is um, eclectic. I think Doris Duke had vast interests and tastes um, in, her, in, in, her, in her personal life and in her philanthropy. 
Um, she was a you know renowned patron of the arts and the performing arts uh, in particular. She lived in Hawaii for a, a significant portion of the time and really threw herself into the cultural milieu there and took on, you know took up surfing and took up outrigger um, canoeing. Um, she she just did a lot. She traveled to her whole life. She she was interested in many things. So eclectic is 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 one word. I think a second word that defines the way that she lived was modern in the sort of technical sense, which is that she was always of the time that she was in. Uh, you see that in her clothing, um, but again, you see that in her philanthropic taste. So, you know, early in her philanthropic career in the 30s and 40s, she was funding Planned Parenthood. You know, later in her um, philanthropic career, she was funding the NAACP and the United Negro College Fund. She gave a, a, a gift equivalent to $10 million in today's money to create what is still the largest um, archive, oral archive of, of tribal and indigenous um, linguistic traditions. Um, she was funding sickle cell disease and uh, research and research on HIV AIDS when we wouldn't even talk about these diseases. Um, and then I think the third thing that, that, that word that defines Doris Duke is subversive. She broke the rules. Um, she didn't, she didn't follow the conventional rules, certainly of her class and her milieu. She was funding um, and patronizing uh, avant-garde black artists when that was considered, you know, gauche uh, in, in, in her social circles. Um, again, she was, you know, she was doing funding disease research for disease categories that were, that raised social anxiety in this country um, um, about who these diseases were associated with and what they were uh, uh, indicative of. And so that, Without a lot of documentary evidence, you know, that's really what we try to apply to the foundation. Um, uh, that that ethos is what we try to apply to the foundation today. What we do now, uh, you know, as you summed up, our mission is supporting the well-being of people on the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. That's a pretty big barn door, um, <laughs> but it comprises her eclecticism. Um, mm -hmm. We have national grant-making programs that span from supporting performing artists to supporting environmental conservation um, and a lot in between. Um, we also uh, continue to own and operate two um, physical centers um, that serve the public and that were properties that Doris Duke um, lived in when she was alive. She didn't make provision for most of the places that she lived. She made provision for these two and I think that demonstrates um, their significance uh, to her is more than places to live. So one is Duke Farms, which is a 2,700 acre um, uh, environmental stewardship center in New Jersey. Her father, JB, first established the property there, but it's where Doris Duke's interest in environmental conservation was really awakened. Um, and so today it's both a really essential regional recreational and nature amenity and also an active site of uh, agroecological research. And then the other is, um, uh, uh, called Shangri-La and it's in Honolulu and it's um, um, one of the few standalone museums of uh, Islamic art in the world. Um, and it comprises a very significant uh, aesthetically and curatorially significant collection of art from uh, the, the North Africa, the near and Middle East uh, South and South Asia. Um, but it's also, it's more than a museum. It's also a place um, that is that hosts uh, contemporary artists who are inspired by the collection in the grounds. Um, and it's a place um, that provides a space for transformational conversations uh, uh, in Hawaii uh, and among leaders from around the world. Well, that sounds like a place I want to go. It's, it's not bad. <laughs> not bad. 
Well, thank you for sharing all that. So let's talk about um, funding priorities. That's so interesting the way that you all have tried to like stay true to kind of her character. That's so interesting. Um, let's talk about the, the funding priorities now. And I know you're really involved, um, the foundation is, as a founding member of the STEM Opportunity Alliance. I think that's kind of a newer kind mm -hmm. of uh, area for you all. So why don't we start there? And um, we're not talking S-T-E-M. We're talking about S-T-E-M-M. -M. So let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so we're, um, as I said, we're eclectic. And one of our uh, contemporary programs is in medical research, um, where we support principally um, the biomedical workforce, um, research workforce, which accounts for an outsized share of innovation in biomedicine. And, um, and that provides us a way with relatively limited funds to sort of invest in the future of cures and therapies for diseases. Um, you know, one of the one of the challenges that one faces in biomedicine, but it's true across the sciences, is, you know, for a lot of reasons, this is really not a very um, um, racially diverse workforce. It's not a very diverse workforce by gender, um, and so a really important part of our program over the quarter century life of the foundation has been to really invest in um, enabling a much more diverse workforce. We think that that. Um, is more just in and of itself because it provides the opportunities of this career to uh, as wide uh, a number uh, as wide uh, uh, um, uh, a sample of the population as possible as wide a population as possible. It's also important because we think it produces better research. And I think that you know we saw vividly in COVID, um, although you can see it across you know biomedicine that. Um, you know, the lack of diversity in, in, in the, the biomedical research uh, workforce and in the health um, field in general um, has a lot of pernicious effects on what kinds of cures and therapies get developed. You know, a lot of these cures and therapies don't work as well for non-white populations because of the ways that samples, that, that uh, experimental samples um, are, uh, are, are for drug testing. Um, are are designed, um, and um, and even those cures um, that are effective um, don't aren't we aren't able to use to their fullest effect because people rightly don't trust uh, a medical system that doesn't look like them and that isn't able to to respond to um, to to communities um, own perceptions of themselves and definitions of themselves and an articulation of their priorities. Um, and so, you know, this is something that we'd worked really hard on. And one of the things that we, I think, recognized was, um, one, this is a problem across science. And so a lot of what the biomedical workforce is confronting is a set of problems that have been inherited from you know, other parts of scientific training, whether it's K through 12 scientific training or undergraduate scientific training. Um, and, and the other thing that we recognized was that if we could improve some of these challenges, address some of these challenges across all of science, it would really accelerate efforts to enable a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable biomedical workforce. And so, you know, what we did was we got together with uh, the White House, um, whose Office of Science and Technology Policy had expressed uh, an avowed interest in addressing inequity in the sciences. We got together with a bunch of other foundations um, and, and working through and with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, we launched 
at the end of last year, the STEM Opportunity Alliance, it was launched at um, the first ever uh, White House Summit on Equity and Excellence in STEM. And STEM is, you know, just a catch-all term for science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine, which are sort of the major scientific disciplines. Um, but we launched at the first ever White House Summit on Equity and Excellence in STEM. And what the STEM Opportunity Alliance is, is really the first all of science, all of enterprise, whole of science effort intended to achieve um, an equitable and inclusive uh, set of STEM fields by 2050. And, you know, today, a couple months after launching, um, it's a coalition of 90 organizations that are collectively investing a uh, billion dollars um, in trying to achieve a more um, equitable and inclusive STEM. And the, the main goal of the STEM Opportunity Alliance isn't to sort of replace or displace um, any of the other really important efforts that are happening. It's really as a force multiplier. Um, to really demonstrate that this is a, a movement that extends across society, that extends across sectors, that extends across scientific disciplines. And in so doing, you know, lend um, imprimatur and credibility to all of those specific efforts that are happening at, in different fields and at different levels and in different sectors. Yeah, and you know, the word that just came to my mind is um, disruption, right? I think about uh, how you described Doris Duke Right. I think that word applies to her really well. And this really is kind of a disruption. If I think about just like if we just take it down to something simple and basic like maternal and child health outcomes. Right. And we know that, you know, black moms and black babies are dying at disproportionately you know, high rates. And when they are treated by people that look like them, they have better health outcomes. Um, lots of reasons for that. So. That yeah, that dis that idea of disruption is kind of what comes to my mind. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, you know the way I I think about disruption is that um, you know disruption describes when the structure of a market changes, and I think in the sciences there are um, you know two two sorts of shibboleths that I think we have to it's time to discard. Um, at the macro level, I, we, 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 the, the, we, we, as a society, have long recognized that science and technology provides a lot of really important social goods, and it also provides a lot of fuel to the engine of our economy, and therefore to the engine of shared prosperity. And I think that um, we sometimes the, the 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 role of science in providing for a competitive economy in society is seen as subordinating all other kinds of goods that science could produce, you know, more widely enjoyed prosperity, more widely enjoyed opportunity. And I think we're now seeing that that's, that's actually the opposite is true. You know, we're not going to have uh, a competitive science and we're not going to have a science that provides um, innovation that can benefit society unless we can get just everybody off the sidelines and, and, and enable everybody, no matter their race, no matter their gender, um, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their sexual identity, um, to be able to participate in the sciences. We just won't have the workforce um, to be able to do it, much less the sort of advantages to innovation that we all know accrue from diversity. I think the second shibboleth is, you know, science more than almost any other discipline is really wedded to an idea of meritocracy. Um, and that's because science is, the, is what we look to to provide objective knowledge about the way the world and the universe is organized. Knowledge is sort of independent of our minds and our preferences. And so as a result of that, 
you know, we there's almost a religious devotion to the method of science. Like that somehow, you know, as long as you follow the method really, really effectively, more effectively than the other person, um, then then you'll get the right result. And so if the casualty of that is, you know, you know, the, the fact that it just seems like non-white scientists aren't able to get to those results at the same rate as white scientists or that non-male scientists aren't able to get to those results as much as male scientists. Well, that's just the method, the objective method telling us the truth. And in reality, right, we know that there is no meritocracy that's divorced from um, the society that we live in. And in fact, the very construct of a, of a meritocracy is sometimes what's used to sanitize. Um, the inequitable distribution of opportunity. Um, and, and, and so we've got to get rid of that and figure out how do we get that objectivity? You know, how do we get a really rigorous scientific method without allowing that method to be a tool um, that's used to advantage some and disadvantage mm -hmm. others? That's hard to do, but we're not going to be able to do it unless we just discard the idea that somehow that meritocracy and that method is colorblind and genderblind. Um, mm -hmm. And now I think we've given that up. So I think the kind of the market of science, so to speak, is really changing in structure. And, you know, disruption is really bad for people who were making, were, were achieving, were producing value, whether that's profit or something else in the old world. So people who are getting ahead on that antiquated idea of meritocracy, that antiquated idea of competition, you know, they're in for a rude awakening. The good news about disruption is it creates the opportunities for a lot of other people to create new kinds of value. And I think we're right. going to see that. You know, concretely, I think we're going to see that research settings that have, um, you know, that are really good at get, training scientists from, a, from all kinds of different backgrounds are going to achieve better research. I think we're going to see that companies that are able to hire more and keep more diverse workforces are going to create more value for themselves and for their Shareholders, so I think I think we'll see the real benefits um, that should that that should begin to accrete um, from disruption um, soon. I'm sure we're seeing them now and just not celebrating them, and that's part of what STEM Opportunity Alliance is there to help do. Yeah, yeah, I can see your excitement for this work. Uh, so let's talk about two more of your um, funding priorities. Uh, one is near and dear to my heart, that of child uh, well-being. And then I want to also talk about um, building bridges. I know that's important to you. So uh, tell me about your work in child well-being. Uh, what does your work support and, and why are you in this space? Yeah, well, so Doris Duke in her will um, outlined in the main, the, the major areas of work. She didn't tell us how to do what we do, but she did direct us um, um, with regard to what to work on. And um, so she made a provision in her will to for programs that address the issue of child abuse and neglect. And over the history of the foundation, this work really evolved um, in the same way that the field of human services has evolved, which is from sort of addressing purely the symptoms of child abuse and neglect, although we need to address those symptoms when they emerge in our society, more in a sort of a language your listeners would think of as upstream to addressing some of the fundamental causes of child abuse and neglect, which tend to be kind of interrelated social factors that have a lot to do with poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so for most of the history of this program, you know, we have um, invested in um, reform and innovation in the human services system nationally, and then invested in sort of evolution of the ways in which communities come together to address issues of, of child and family well-being in a local context. We're now, having done that, going through 
um, I think a really exciting um, level of evolution, which is to sort of bring those streams of work together in the child protection system. And um, you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with the with the the sort of vagaries and vicissitudes of the history of the child protection system. But it's always been um, a public human services system that has sort of fit uneasily between you know, a, a real need to address the fact that child abuse and neglect exists in our society and really well-intentioned ideas about how to um, ameliorate that abuse um, alongside, you know, really odious ideas about which parents are fit to, to raise children and which ones aren't. You know, ideas that very often have been either implicitly or explicitly about race and the kinds of um, or ascriptions that we make um, and impute to people based on their, their race. Uh, and the way that we that we think about about um, race in our in our society. And so it's a system that, you know, is both essential to many families and many children and a system that has rightly been critiqued for over surveilling families, for being punitive with families um, and for ultimately inflicting, in some cases, the very kinds of trauma that it's seeking to address, um, you know, thereby potentially worsening the long term life outcomes of children. Um, like a lot of these sorts of systems, you know, what it what it means for these phenomena like racism um, or classism in the system to be systemic is that they're tied in to a whole bunch of structures, structures about the way decisions are made, um, structures about the way funding is allocated that on their face have nothing to do with dynamics of race and have nothing to do with dynamics of class and have nothing to do with judgments about who is fit to parent and who is not or what a family ought to look like. And, and not, and that those structures can get in the way of really enlightened and progressive attempts to address this system. That is beginning to change. And so um, uh, in, in, I believe 2018, uh, a law was passed um, um, called the Families First and Preventative Services Act, a federal law that um, for the first time made available to, um, to, to child welfare agencies, which are either at the state level or at the county level typically, um, to draw on federal funds um, for preventative services. And sort of heretofore, federal funds had really, um, on an entitlement basis, had only been available for foster care. So essentially, the, the funding streams were designed to focus these agencies on the question of removal and kind of to ignore everything that wasn't related to removal and then to incentivize them to actually remove kids from families um, if they felt there was a need to do so. Now there's uh, federal funding available in the same way to enable states to take on preventative services. And so what that means is number one, agencies should or don't have to solely be focused on um, this really aggressive judicial act of assessing whether a family is fit to have a kid and just removing the kid or not. And number two, to, to respond to the many calls that come into state child welfare agencies that don't really merit removal, but are indicative of other challenges that families are facing. And so we're looking at ways that we can work with um, state agencies who are ready to innovate and break new ground um, and begin to build with them what a really a preventative system would look like, a system that, um, that when it encounters families who are in need is able to say, well, what kinds of services from, this, from government or from community organizations might actually help this family to, to get back on track and to make the very kind of outcomes that we want just that we associate with all families who are doing well, more likely for these families and for, for, for many others. Yeah. And if you look at the kind of this, get it, get it, 
getting into like the systemic thing, we literally uh, punish people who are living in poverty by taking their kids away from them. And then sometimes they end up owing the state, right? So they're even, we put them even more, you know, uh, into that, that hole that is uh, the, and trauma of poverty than they already are. So yeah, and I serve on a, a nonprofit board actually working with families in foster care. So this, when I say this space is really meaningful to me, I really mean that. And so I think some of the, if we go back to our word disruption, some of the disruption has got to be to look at where does the money flow and, yeah, and I think why. that's right. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think Look, these are these are really difficult times to be an institutionalist because we're appropriately paying attention to the kinds of diseases that institutions are really vulnerable to and racism and sexism um, and um, are, 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 are the kinds of things that institutions are really vulnerable to. And what's really challenging is that institutions are vulnerable to these things for the very reasons that we value institutions. So, you know, what institutions really do is they, in a complex society, they take, they take normative ends, desirable ends, mm -hmm. um, and they join them to a methodology that we don't have to understand to trust and that we don't understand, have to understand um, in order for it to be replicable and reliable. So a good example of this that's probably less controversial is you know, the Federal Aviation Administration exists in part to take our desire for travel on airlines to be safe and turns it into a replicable method um, that is enforced through regulation and oversight that like you and I don't need to understand. I don't even know why a plane flies, really. Um, like, I guess it's these, you know, truly forces or whatever, but I don't really know how a jet works. And I sure as hell don't know how JFK can keep hundreds of flights straight in a day. But one thing that should be really assuring to you and I is when, if, a, if someone who was applying FAA regulations and air traffic control was explaining why they made the decisions they did, they'd say, because science suggests that this is the best way to manage right. air traffic or study of air traffic suggests this is the best way to do it. Not because this is how, what I feel like, because this is the way I like to do it. You know, that would be, that would be chilling. The problem, you know, with trying to join, you know, uh, a desirable social end to a replicable methodology in a really complex society is number one, that methodology tends to be very blunt and crass in the way that it looks. And so it takes a lot of really rich differences in communities and people and reduces them down to very basic categories that can be tracked, number one. And number two is that because that methodology spits out an answer that we sort of need to regard as objective, it can sanitize, launder the ways in which a part of coming to that answer involves some of our own biases, whether those are explicit biases, as they have been at times in the history of child welfare, or whether they're implicit biases. Um, and you know, the challenge with implicit biases is they're implicit. You know, you don't you don't know that you have them when you're in the room making these making these rules, and that what that's what makes them so pernicious. I think, you know, what you're pointing out that's really important is you know how can we raise these questions really seriously in an abrasive way without throwing into question whether we should have institutions in the first place, because I'm not sure right. that the right way to solve these problems is to get rid of all institutions. It's definitely to reform some institutions. It might be to really reimagine some institutions. Right. And so I think, you know, defund police, as I understand it, isn't really a, a movement that's literally about abolishing the police. It is a movement that's about saying, 
Well, what if there were no police and you had to start with a clean sheet of paper? Might you assign the responsibilities of public safety differently than you assign them today? Might you conceptualize them differently? And might you treat people who are mentally unwell differently than people who are, you know, committing acts of crime with mens rea, with the intent to commit crime, you know, in their in their in their minds and in their hearts? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think what we're really talking about is social change um, is often like inspired by the, those margins of conversations. And if we didn't have those margins, we would not be able to be creative and imagine a different world than than we have. Right. And then using science and data to dig in for those answers, to see those inequities that we don't want to believe that are there. So I think that's right. And I think, you know, democracies when they work are about having values that are in, that are intrinsically worthwhile and instrumentally worthwhile. And so the scheme of civil liberties in our democracy in part reflects a sort of underlying inquit belief about human dignity that you've got to have some range of choice about what you believe and, and what you say and what you do that respects the fact that only you can set your own ends and only you can decide what's right for you, constrained only by the fact that you live in a society with other people. That's the intrinsic value of civil liberties. But they mm -hmm. also have an instrumental value, which is that while our laws and our cultural mores may reflect sort of a majority point of view and should reflect a majority point of view, minority points of view can still be expressed. And so that voices from the margins can keep questioning, you know, whether the majority point of view is right. And I think when our country and when other democracies are at their best, when those ideas have merit, they move from margin to center. Mm -hmm. And the very structures of democracy enable those ideas to move from margin to center. I think, you know, we're at a moment in, in, in our history when I think a lot of people are saying, you know, based on gender, based on race, some views never move from margin to center. And, 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 and that is, an attack on our democracy. But I think it's an attack on our democracy as implemented and executed, not as conceived. And I think that if we sort of really recommit ourselves and rethink the, the these values mm -hmm. um, and the ways in which we've instantiated them uh, in our political system, we'll actually find that our obligation is to the marginal voice um, and to help helping to bring it into the, into the center. But that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. It's easy to say that. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to actually do it on the ground. And in a lot of ways, you know, our work is about doing that in child well-being, in medical research, in the performing arts. So one of the ways to include that those marginalized might be the Building Bridges yeah. initiative that you have. And I want to uh, give you an opportunity to talk about that because I have a few more things I want to be able to squeeze sure. into our time here. But I, I really want you to talk about Building Bridges. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. It's... um. This is a program uh, led by an incredible program officer, uh, program director uh, named Zeba Rahman. And it was it is the only program that wasn't in Doris Duke's will. What was in her will was her really, her profound lifelong passion for Islamic art and culture, which was represented in the collection that's at Shangri-La and that she did make provision for. And um, the program was conceived originally as a way to use art, media, um, and culture to respond to surging Islamophobia and Islamomisia after 9-11. What it's evolved into, though, um, is a program that makes really intelligent early stage investments in 
um, storytellers in all kinds of media um, who, through the prism of the U.S. Muslim experience, tell stories about identity and difference and conflict and comedy that resonate across really wide audiences. So, you know, examples of the kinds of programs that we've invested in are, um, you know, we were some of the earliest money in um, for a then very young comedian named Hassan Minaj as he was developing his first ever Netflix special. You know, there's probably more people in their 20s who have thought about race and what racial difference means through his comedy special than, you know, any other cultural, you know, text, so to speak. Um, you know, it was the, 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 some of the earliest funding for uh, The Secret Life of Muslims, which is a Peabody award-winning web series. Um, we uh, were provided funds to bring um, Little Amal to the United States, who is this sort of 12-foot tall kind of puppet um, of a meant to be the sort of avatar of an Afghan refugee that had toured all over Europe in places like Poland and France, where there are all these conflicts about displacement of people. We helped to bring little Amal to the United States. And she started her U.S. tour in New York, which she took by storm uh, in the in the fall. And there's something about the sort of the, the how serendipitously delightful it is to see this 12 foot tall um, girl in public that just gets people to think differently about these issues, to talk differently about these issues together. So that's the kind of thing that we've been investing in with, with building bridges. And I think, um, you know, there are so many important and well-intended efforts to address issues of racial and ethnic polarization in this country. What I like about the work that we do in building bridges is we have the, we, we have the the narrowness of the perspective of US Muslims. So we're not trying to boil the ocean. We've got a specific identity um, and group of people whose stories we're trying to support. And then, you know, through Zeba and her leadership, we're thinking, we try to think really critically about, you know, who's telling stories in ways that a lot of different people can understand in the places where those audiences already are. Because I think that, that to us, is ultimately what's going to lead to social and cultural change. It doesn't mean other places where these stories are told aren't important. It just means that we think that long-term change in our culture is going to come both from, you know, an avant-garde art installation at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York and from, you know, Disney making a different kind of Marvel movie um, because the directors look different and the producers look different and have different... Uh, uh, experiences. We think both are really important. Mm -hmm. We think the work that we're doing certainly helps to see the latter in, in, in significant ways. Mm -hmm. And knowing each other. And it sounds like that program helps us know, you know, Absolutely. people that we would not, would, would not know. You do such a great job of shifting to where I want to go. Thank you for that. Or maybe you do such a good surreptitious job of guiding the conversation subtly <laughs> in the right direction. So we'll assume it's that. Yeah, we'll go with that. So one of the, the things we ta have talked about on um, community possibilities before is the role of philanthropy. And it's something that, that we talked about a few weeks ago. And I want to give you the opportunity, the space to kind of talk about that, because I'd be really remiss if I had, you know, you on the show uh, and not ask you about that, because, um, you know, philanthropy, nonprofits, grantees, right, we're all in such an interesting, challenging space. I think everybody is 
questioning their role in social change, whether or not we're, we've kind of propped up, you know, things that should not be propped up. Anyway, so I wanted to give you an opportunity kind of to think about the role funders can play in advancing social justice and equity and how you think about uh, the Doris Duke Foundation and kind of what your role is in that space. Well, I think, you know, it goes back to something we talked about a little earlier with regard to institutions. And, um, you know, our institutions are the mediating layer of our democracy. They're sort of what they comprise the sort of sinews and the organs of our democracy. And those institutions in that democracy are really under existential threat. And historically, what I think um, philanthropy has done really effectively in this country is to support the formation and the evolution, and in some cases, the inception of really important institutions. Um, you know, whether that's um, you know, in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, that was really about formalizing fields, fields like public health, professionalizing fields like medicine, professionalizing fields like the social science, or investing in the kind of managerial rationality that we now see as central to what the professional nonprofit is and does. You know, the nonprofit is not a group of voluntary citizens kind of solving a problem the best they can. It's a group of professionals who are applying a real method to a problem, whether that's a problem in community or a problem uh, across communities. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, we're at a period where those institutions um, are really in question. And, and, you know, I think the critique from the right is that those institutions are corrupt and captured and they no longer stick up for and support, you know, the little guy. They're, they're, they sort of serve these shadowy global interests. And I think the critique from the left is the one that you and I talked about, which is that these institutions, you know, have been really important in delivering a lot of social goods, but they've also been really important in delivering a lot of social pathologies like racism and sexism. You know, I think that the role of funders has to be to save institutions, the de democratic institutions in a moment of real crisis. As we, as I mentioned, I don't mm -hmm. think that's you know, defending them um, necessarily against these critiques. I think that's integrating the critiques and saying, you know, what would institutions need to look like uh, in order to serve um, our, our highest democratic ideals? And what would institutions need to look like in order to help us expiate and purge, you know, the worst um, sorts of diseases from our democracy, particularly around race and gender and, and class. And I think what foundations can do in that space that's really powerful and that few other actors can do is because we're independent, you know, because we have no natural constituent, you know, we can not only fund controversial ideas about what institutions, the new, the new institutions of the future should look like, we can fund conflicting ideas. You know, we can fund two sides of a debate or three sides of a debate or four sides of a debate. And, you know, in some cases, the debates aren't about the future of institutions aren't just between the left and the right. They're about different parts of the left right. or different parts of the right. Um, they're about community versus a view that's, that, uh, that's national or federal or regional. And, you know, foundations can get in the mix and say, you know, where, do, where are we missing the ideas about what foundations look like and what are all the competitors and how can we fund those competitors and see which idea is going to win out, which idea is going to be going to be most um, most appealing. So, you know, that's what we think a lot about in our programs. You know, our work in medical research is about, you know, where is innovation, an inclusive innovation going to come from? Um, our, our in, in, in disease research and disease therapeutics. Our work in child well-being, as we just discussed, is so what does a different child protection human services system look like? And it might be a different mix of the state and 
community and individual than we've had in the past. It might be governed and organized and administrated um, in a different kind of way. What is a vital and vibrant performing arts sector look like and who's gonna pay for it? And what is the range of voices that we're gonna that we're gonna support in the in the performing arts? So I, I think I think our job is to commit seriously to the idea that institutions are important, um, but not commit seriously to any idea about what those institutions are gonna look like and instead invest in ideas that 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 over time will aggregate public and private capital as a demonstration of their salience and clarity and efficacy. Okay, Sam, I think my head just really exploded there. Because that is so, what, wow, what a concept. We actually don't have to stay in our corners. We can work creatively and imagine a future that is really different. Wow. We don't, and I don't mean, I don't mean that, sorry to interrupt. I don't mean that no. in a patronizing way no, at no. all, but that's kind of, we live on the, we all seem to like live as stretched in, in the margins as possible, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is to have these really like complex conversations, hopefully in a simple way that people can like relate to, but what a concept to fund conflicting ideas and see what's the best idea for us as a people, for us as a society. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, 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 no, I think it is. It, it's, it's sort of in some ways, unfortunately, in some ways, fortunately, a really radical idea. I think you know, we live in a time where, um, you know, purity tests are really important. And in, in, in relief, distinctions are important in order to mobilize the political forces that are required for social change. If you're advocating for point of view A, you've got to explain why point of view A is different than point of view B and, and why it's important to declare your fidelity to point of view A. So one is just as an organizing principle, it's important for different ideas to distinguish themselves from each other. And that leads just in its nature to purity tests. Here's everything associated with my idea A, here's everything associated with your idea B. I think one of the other reasons that purity tests have become really important is because you know, part of confronting the pathologies of our democracy, particularly around, around anti-black racism, particularly around classism, particularly around sexism is that so many, so much of, there was so much baggage packaged into ideas that weren't on their face about race or class or gender um, that, that were about those things. And so, um, and so it's been really important to say, you know, we're not going to accept racism as the cost of having uh, compromise on healthcare policy or compromise on infrastructure policy. Instead, we're going to root out, you know, the racism in the way that those public goods have been provided. Um, so those are really important reasons, you know, the, the, and that's good. And many of the people that we fund have a side and they should have a side and they need to have a side. And that side should be clear. I think what, what I think is hard for a lot of people who work in philanthropy to recognize or reconcile is like, we don't have to have that side. And funding a lot of sides isn't to betray even a side that we, we might be partial to as individuals or an institution, because what we really need is the debate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the result if we don't have a productive debate, the result is that these institutions are going to go away. Um, they're going to go away completely, and they're not going to be replaced by anything effective or productive or useful. So breaking that, that this complex conversation that we're having, what did kind of down to the community level? So what advice would you have for people working in communities to address social and health inequities? Um. I think one is 
um, tenacity. You know, I think this work is more likely to be realized in a concrete way at the community level, but it takes a lot more work and you're often at the community level, you know, you're downstream from all of these systems. And so you're dealing, you know, with the aggregated benefit of these systems, as well as with sort of the aggregated filth that they're spewing out into community, like a form of, like a form of pollution. So tenacity is one, like you just have to work at it. Um, I think a second is, you know, with regard to this last conversation about polarization and purity tests is, you know, try to take energy from polarization rather than being constrained by it. So, you know, it is good to have really well-defined um, sides in a debate that can help you to figure out, well, who, who do I think I agree with and what are the ideas that they're expounding that I can take? But you don't have to take everything else that comes along with those ideas. And sometimes there is going to be, um, you know, something that a, a person or an organization working for, say, racial justice at a national level is going to say that's useful and applies in your own community. And sometimes there's going to be something that's not useful and that doesn't apply in your own community. And often the thing that's least useful is making a bunch of assumptions about the other side. And so communities are going to find opportunities for compromise and collaboration that aren't going to be available mm -hmm. um, at the national level or at the regional level or at some higher level of abstraction in the conversation. I mean, just to take a good example of this, you know, right right now, you know, the community of, of, of East Palestine, Ohio is confronting, you know, a nightmare that 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 is terrifying, I hope, to anybody in this country. Like the idea that this sort of huge, uncontrolled, kind of unknowable release of toxins into the community um, that that the company itself, uh, Suffolk Northern, and that the state of Ohio is clearly, and the federal government are clearly struggling to respond to. Um, you know, that's going to open up the space for, amidst the tragedy, probably really challenging conversations about race, you know, or about public services um, because of where the toxins are concentrated or where the services are concentrated. And those conversations might bring together, you know, people who haven't seen themselves as having a lot in common over the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. That 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 we would never wish this on a community and we hope to how that the problem gets solved as quickly as possible. But I hope that in the way that the problem gets solved, you know, people are able to identify other ways that they have things in common. I hope that, that in solving this problem, they might say, you know, what is it that we figured out how to do together that could help us build a better school system or build a better health system? Because we saw elements of our experience in common that maybe were hard to see across lines of race or hard to see across lines of geography or hard to see across lines of class. Um, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but that no one at the national level is gonna give them the tools to do that or the ability to see that. They're gonna have to figure that out for themselves by seeing each other as neighbors and fellow community members. Exactly. So, Sam, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, and I want to close um, with the question I ask all my guests. When you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? You know, I think we're living in a moment, as we've talked about throughout this whole conversation, where I think a lot of the paradigms that seem to have worked or that worked for some people, enough people over the course of the 20th century, um, no longer seem to work. Some of them are about capitalism and the way that, that the role that capitalism plays as a way to allocate goods and services in a society. Some of them have to do with government and the way government is organized and some of them have to do with community and what's important about community. Um, that's a really big opportunity. It's frightening when these paradigms begin to fall away and are challenged because 
all of the good things they do for us, they can't do anymore. And it's hard to know what their replacement is, but it also opens up new possibilities. And, you know, a really important thinker of innovation, although he's not often regarded this way, is, is Niccolo Machiavelli. And, mm. and one of the things he writes about, it, about innovation is he says that it's, it's really tough to be an innovator because you've got enemies and everyone who has something to gain from the old way of doing things. And you only kind of have lukewarm friends and anyone who can gain from something different because people are afraid of what they don't know. And so even if they would be better off uh, in a different world and under a different paradigm, they're a little tepid about, about giving up the devil that they know. You know, this is a moment where I think due to a range of trends accelerated by COVID, we're ready to give up the devil we know in a lot of places. And so that means that we can begin to think ideas that we couldn't have thought before. Um, and that's exciting. And so what I see is a much a horizon of possibility that's a lot further out than it's been, certainly over the course of my whole life and probably during, you know, most of our lives uh, of those who are listening to this, to this podcast. So, so that's, I see an almost limitless range of possibilities. And the question is, can we seize them, you know, with courage and excitement as opposed to shrinking away from them, um, you know, out of fear? Well, Sam, I don't know if you've done a TED Talk, but if you haven't, you definitely <laughs> should. No, I'm sure everyone's better off uh, for me not having done uh, not having done a TED Talk. I, but this is this is better than any TED Talk. I really appreciate um, the incisive questions that you've asked and the opportunity um, that you provided uh, for you and I to think about these really big ideas. And I hope they're useful to your listeners. Uh, yeah, I have just really enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed getting to know you so much. So how people, how can people get in touch with uh, you and learn more about the foundation? Yeah, well, just go to uh, dorisduke.org, D-O-R-I-S-D-U-K-E.org. Uh, -E um, and you can take a look at all the work that we're doing there, um, including the work of our centers. Um, and you can also um, find out how to get in touch with anybody uh, at Doris Duke Foundation who you think might be useful to you. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Sam, for coming on the, po uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I sure hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, can I ask you a big favor? Would you like this episode and maybe even take a minute to review and maybe even take another minute to share with somebody you know that might benefit from listening. I really would appreciate it. I also wanted to remind everyone that we have revamped our resources page on the website, communityevaluationsolutions.com slash resources. And there you're going to find our new nonprofit evaluation capacity self-assessment and our brand spanking new coalition self-assessment. So if you are a new nonprofit, if you are a coalition, I have a few tools just for you. I hope you will check it out and let me know what you think. Thanks everybody. And I will see you next time.